The Koi Gig Pod. I'm laughing because I was listening to a conversation that the City Girls were having and they were just going on about this throw-in. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's our weapon in the World Cup. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. Football Show on Off The Ball. With Sky. Watch every live Premier League game this season on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. I'm prepared to end it and I can't. Well, do it then. Again. Do it then. What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Oh. Now you're welcome along to the football show. Joe Malloy with you this evening. So later on in the show, Miguel Delaney is going to join us. The broad thrust of that chat being we are 11 days out from a World Cup and football is just in a very strange space, I think it's fair to say. We'll chat a bit about the Premier League weekend uh, just gone as well. So Miguel Delaney is with us later on. Uh, first, though, we start with a podcast which is making waves and capturing the imagination, I think it's fair to say, away from home is courtesy of The Athletic. It's available wherever you get your podcast from. Six episodes, the first three are out now. So Adam Crafton, the man behind it and his team, embedded with Shakhtar Donetsk across their Champions League campaign. The awful backdrop, of course, being Putin's war in their home country. And I'm very happy to say Adam joins us now. Great to have you on, Adam. Thanks for the time. No, thank you for having us. Uh, It's great to talk to you for a whole host of reasons. Can I start with uh, something... Andrei Shevchenko was talking about at the weekend with David Walsh in the Sunday Times and I I suspect you have felt it very much reflected in your work on this podcast. Uh, Shevchenko was just talking about, I suppose, his anger and there is a a kind of a bristling anger there. Uh, And the source of the anger being that the 2014 annexation of Crimea uh, really uh, shrug of the shoulders might be the uncharitable way of, of, of putting it around Europe and not least within FIFA. And what Shevchenko said was, you let the bully take a little and he comes back for more. Mm. And you could certainly say if we just focus in on football, FIFA have been to the fore of letting Russia away with things. The World Cup in 2018 being the glaring example. Gianni Infantino awarded the Russian state medal in 2019. And, you know, I think um, even the fact that Shakhtar Donetsk haven't played a home match since 2014 has been overlooked somewhat in the uh, footballing world. Uh, Shevchenko brought that point up in a very strong way at the weekend. I suspect you felt that anger about not just this past year, but these past eight years. Yeah, for sure. And it's actually one of the things that, you know, we have a whole episode, the third episode of this series is de- is pretty much dedicated to FIFA's relationship with, with Ukraine um, and some of the football clubs in Ukraine, one of which Shakhtar are, are actually suing FIFA for 50 million euros about some transfer regulations that were brought in since the war as well but in terms of that world cup in 2018 you know the Shakhtar ceo sergey palkin he tells us you know it's a what happened in february and march this year he considers to be a connected story from 2014 to fifa and i suppose you know he also says not just fifa you know the european union the west as a whole uh media organizations all of us probably didn't respond strongly enough, right? When 2014 happened and Russia annexed Crimea, you had um, uh, forces go into uh, the areas like the Donbass region, Luhansk, Donetsk, uh, which meant that Shakhtar haven't been able to play at their home stadium now for almost a decade. And you know, Shakhtar are very, very clear that they feel as though FIFA didn't take that particularly seriously. You know, four, four years after 
a country invades its neighbours, um, they're able to host a World Cup, be told by the FIFA president it's the best World Cup that there's ever been. There's an absolutely cringe-inducing clip that we play on our podcast from when Infantino receives that medal at the Kremlin where he is thanking uh, Vladimir Putin. And it, and, and it makes you squirm. You know, we play it, you know, we, we play it out. And I think as a listener, you just call it sort of, you're, you're squirming on behalf of, of FIFA. And it's ongoing, you know. FIFA, for example, when the war started or the full invasion started earlier this year, if you remember back, they didn't appear to actually want to um, disqualify Russia from the qualification for the World Cup initially. Mm. Because initially they were going down that Olympics route of, uh, well, if you change your name and you go in a different color kit or something like that, then maybe you can all still go out there. Um, and I think it was only really the fact that the UEFA Champions League final was scheduled to play in St. Petersburg that kind of forced everyone into a, into a decision because the UEFA Champions League final had to move to, to from Moscow to Paris, uh, sorry, from St. Petersburg to Paris. And then people started talking about, well, you know, you won't play the final in Russia, but you're sponsored by Gazprom. That created another situation for UEFA. And then UEFA are doing those things, which then puts a huge pressure on FIFA. And they had the double complication of Russia's qualification game was meant to be against Poland. And Poland, of course, massively hostile towards Russian expansionism for obvious reasons. And the Polish players were basically saying, we're not going to play against them. So FIFA were really forced into that decision. Hmm. Ukraine didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup. Mm. I dare say it didn't go down well at the time. No, and actually, you know, it was it was really interesting during making this series. Um, I was speaking to some of the female journalists who who were travelling with, with Shakhtar, and I specify female because obviously a lot of the men at the moment are unable to leave the country because of, of conscription. So there's more female journalists than maybe there would ordinarily be following Ukrainian clubs um at, at this time and and they were they were saying to me you know there were some tv stations and newspapers in ukraine that just completely boycotted the 2018 world cup hmm. and and i was saying that i had no idea about that 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 boycott had happened and in retrospect it's really obvious and maybe all your listeners listening knew that and, and fine fair enough but i i actually wasn't fully conscious of that and it and even when i think back to 2018 and we think about some of the issues that were raised around the Russia World Cup, I think that's like the Skripal poisoning, um, which was only, I think that was only uh, six months or so, wasn't it, before the World Cup, mm. um, that that took place. And so there was a lot of understandable noise around that, which obviously led to the diplomatic boycott, by, I think the British royal family. But I don't remember people saying, you know, how can we have a World Cup here four years after Crimea and the Donbass? And I think the Russians did a pretty good job of kind of, framing what was happening in that part of Ukraine as a conflict rather than invasion and hostile forces going in. They they did a really good job of kind of muddying it and making out, you know, this is all really, really complicated when actually, it, you know, the vast majority of people did not want the Russians there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's been a real sort of clarity since the full invasion about what the real situation uh, is in Ukraine. Yeah, I didn't know that at all about the 2018 World Cup in Ukraine whatsoever. And it was interesting even at another one of those moments where Shevchenko was talking about the qualification campaign for Euro 2000, which again is, you know, like this is 
two years after USA play Iran in the World Cup at 98 and you know that that's that's a big talking point it's not like geopolitical situations were never referenced when we talked about football but he was remembering when Ukraine played Russia in the same qualification group they played the game in Moscow they had to sleep at the Ukrainian embassy uh, because it just wasn't safe to sleep elsewhere and again this isn't a, a thousand years ago I don't remember that being a big thing so I I can understand almost that sense of neglect perhaps that they feel and uh, yeah yeah I suppose I, I, the one thing I would say is mm. I actually I asked you know this was a question I was asking particularly to some of their board members and I, I asked one of their board members a guy called Vadim Gunko um, and and I, I was I was saying to him you know when you would go because before Champions League games clubs directors go for like these official lunches together mm. and I was saying you know when you over the last uh, since 2014 would be going to, to these lunches with, I don't know, people from Real Madrid or Manchester City, whoever you're playing, would they like ask you about what was going on back home in, in Donetsk? And he said like it always felt to him as though they just thought it was like something going on over there. Yeah. Rather that you know, oh, something's happening in Ukraine. It's all a bit complicated. Isn't that sad? Yeah. Rather than it really hitting home with people, they've been forced out of their home. People have lost their homes footballers have lost their homes um all of Shakhtar's facilities right you've got a Don the Donbass Arena is one of the best stadiums in Eastern Europe in theory it was used during Euro 2012 um it was only built in like the late 2000s of that decade mm. um and all of the training facilities the academy infrastructure and and he just always had this feeling that people were kind of just living in a different reality but he did I asked him about you know Gazprom because indirectly having competed in the Champions League or Europa League, yeah. they would have, I suppose, been taking money themselves from Gazprom. Um, and he and he said, yeah, like, you know, when we look back, it, there's a lot of things where we ask other people, could they have been stronger? But he also said, maybe we could have been stronger about the Gazprom thing, but you fall into this thing that you don't want to disrupt people too much. You don't want to ask too much um, because you're trying to get bits of support here and there, and that can be hard to get in football. We have a clip here which gives people a perfect sense of why this podcast is well worth a listen. And it's quite clear, I think, in your reaction to Ivan Petriak, one of the players, that you didn't anticipate the answer he was about to give you. So you've been embedded with Shakhtar and we'll talk about this Champions League campaign and how they've tried to navigate it over the last uh, number of months. But uh, this is one of the conversations. I, you can tell us afterwards where it happened. It sounds casual enough. And so... Um, uh, the backdrop is the war and again this is Ivan Petriak one of the players with Shakhtar Donetsk and Adam here is talking to him as part of the podcast have a listen has there been any impacts of people you know anyone you know that has been injured or oh, this this is a very difficult question my my wife's father he died oh. they killed him I'm so sorry yes he was close to Donetsk close to Shakhtar house and they kill him there and you just receive a phone call to tell you this is what happened yeah I know I know I spoke with the with the soldiers like I know what's happened there I know everything and my family know everything my wife also um, I imagine I know you're now playing football again but do you almost feel like you're playing not only football but also playing for your country and for him, for him, his memory and everything. Of course, of course. And I scored last goal. 
in Hungary I scored in Conference League goal and it was it was for him. It was for him. I I used the T-shirt with uh, with his photo because he was he was too close with me. He was too close. He was my like second father, and for me this it was also very difficult. Still, still, still not good, but first two three months was very very difficult. What, what was his name? His name? Yeah. Same like me, Ivan. Ivan. Yes. Also. So Ivan Senior. Yes. Ivan. Yes. Can, can I ask? Were you able to? Were you able to have a to bury to have a funeral? No, no, no. We we didn't find the body, but I, I know what's happened and. Right now, there where he, where he died, there is Russian territory, yeah. and uh, still we we cannot take the body, and we don't know where is the body. Ivan Petriak, there, one of the Shakhtar players, talking to Adam Crafton of the Athletic on the podcast, which is uh, newly released away from home. Adam's with us now, obviously. Uh, your uh, memory of that interaction? Where did that happen, Adam? That was it. Was actually the first night of when I was actually with the players. So it was before the first game of the Champions League group stages against Red Bull Leipzig, and I'd. It's extraordinary, really, because because there's no commercial flights in and out of Ukraine at the moment. It meant for the club to play these Champions League games because on the weekend they're playing Ukrainian Premier League games in Ukraine, and then they would have to travel. Um, to wherever they were going across Europe, whether that was Celtic, Red Bull, Leipzig, Madrid, all their home games in, in Warsaw, in Poland. So they'd have to drive out of Ukraine, which could take them sort of eight to 10 hours, go over the border where they're being held for several hours on end. And then they would go to the Polish town of Rzeszow, kind of Southeast Poland. That's where I met them for the first game. And then we we flew on the Shakhtar plane from Rzeszow to Leipzig. And it was that, that night at the, I think it was the Steinberger Hotel in, in Leipzig in the hotel lobby and it was actually the first interview that, that I did that that evening and we were actually just having a drink in the lobby and sort of chatting about football and all different things and he was t- and he's just kind of talking about the war and I, I had no idea to be honest that that he'd lost anyone because he's not one of the better known players um, in like the bits of research that I'd done about him I couldn't see anything to suggest that um, but it was very very clear from that conversation and also the very first conversation you will hear in this podcast series is an interview that I did with their captain, Taras Stepanenko. And that was right at the start of the full invasion. And that was actually just for a written piece that we were doing at the time about um, the impact on Ukrainian football back in February and March. And and Stepanenko at the time, and you can hear at the start of the series, his kids are in the background while he's taking this phone call. And him and his wife and his kids are sleeping at the time in an in in a, in a bomb shelter basically underground in their house near kiev near kiev and and he was just he took this phone call at that time and you can hear his kids like rustling in the background saying sort of daddy this daddy that and and he told me that him and his neighbor would kind of interchange to go to a vantage point uh from a balcony because they live near a forest and while their kids and wives were downstairs sheltering they would interchange to check if any Russians were coming through the forest. This is in the first days of the full invasion. And Taras, he had he had a baseball bat, and his neighbour had a gun. Neither of them knew really how to how to use a gun, but that kind of gives you an impression of just the extent to which all level of privilege was stripped away from you know someone like Taras Stepanenko, who's played seventy times for Ukraine. He's played 
since 2010 for one of Ukraine's biggest clubs, Shakhtar Donetsk, three months earlier, is playing against Real Madrid in the Champions League. And all of a sudden, everyone is the same. Football on Off The Ball. With Sky. All the football you love in one place. Across Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. When we think of dressing rooms, I think in the main there are places where there's just a lot of humour and immature behaviour and it's a pretty relaxed vibe and then closer to kickoffs, that's when we bang the tables and we rah, rah, rah and out we go. Um, is there like a, a, a solemn air hanging over them at all times? Because I mean, that, that feels unsustainable as well. What, what did you observe on the general mood? Yeah, look, I mean... The fascinating thing about Shakhtar this season was that they were, they are a very, very young team. And that's partly because they lost most of their, you know, we know Shakhtar as being this almost like landing spot for Brazilian talent. Yeah. And, you know, players like Willian and Fred and Fernandinho who have ended up in the in the English Premier League. And this summer they lost 14 of their foreign players. Understandably, they didn't want to go back to a war zone. Um and they left the club and it, it meant like the team that beat Red Bull Leipzig 4-1 on the opening day of the Champions League which was just like a ridiculous result in the circumstances great for a podcast um, <laughs> was I think there was 10 Ukrainians in the starting lineup uh, 7 or 8 of them had come through Shakhtar's youth system 7 of them were aged 23 or below only one player I think aged over 26 in the starting lineup so they're a very very young team and I think that probably helped them in terms of all the traveling because it was like a group of friends like on a bit of tour together. Do you mm, know what I mean? Like mm. like a kind of band of brothers. Yeah. And, you know, they could still, you know, they're still, they're into all the same things as 21, 22-year-olds are across Europe, right? They're obsessed with TikTok and they're um, listening to music and they're playing uh, FIFA and they're doing all those same things. But I think they're also very, very conscious of the fact that men of their same age back home are fighting for them because they they all knew people who were uh, either fighting whether it was their dads whether it was their brothers whether it was their best friends um and and the consciousness of that kind of shone through in every single conversation that i had like they right. all wanted to make that point you know they they i think they very much recognized their role as not like a tool of the state. Yeah, actually, it's kind of a tool of the state, right? They're being given special dispensation by the Ukrainian government as men aged between 18 and 65 or 21 and 65 to leave the country at a time where there is conscription and you need to be available to fight for your country. And therefore, what they were doing was almost like a cultural symbol of of Ukraine um, and raising awareness. And I think they, I think they as a club, they as players... Were incredibly conscious of that, mm. um, and even you know, I mean, they, Shakhtar actually played today in um, the Ukrainian Premier League, and that match was interrupted by an air raid alarm in um, I think it was in Lviv, and then at the end of the game in the dressing room, they're posing for photos with members of the Ukrainian armed forces. So it it just dominates absolutely every part of their of their life, and I suppose it will continue to do so until this war ends. Who knows how any of us would react if a father or a brother were fighting and we were playing professional mm. football. Did any of the players express a conflict, a guilt, a sense that they should be fighting alongside their friends and family as opposed to playing football, as, as important as they've been told that is? Yeah, I think that was always there. 
with them. I, I mean, for example, actually, when the war first broke out, um, or the full invasion first broke out in, in late February, there were a few Shakhtar players. Um, in particular, I remember a 23-year-old left-back, Viktor Kornienko. He was on social media in army uniform as part of the territorial defence, which is kind of, it's not the armed forces, it's like a humanitarian effort that was helping to distribute medicines and distribute um, kind of emergency food packages uh, to those who really needed them uh, and helping with checkpoints and that kind of thing. I think the fact that the Ukrainian government itself declared that football should should resume in the summer means that that level of guilt isn't i don't think it's really there mm. and you know at least not visibly it might be you know it might be something they talk about amongst themselves a little bit more but i think with the ukrainian government saying you know you have a duty to go out and play football and show the best of us and show that our you know we are going to go on doing the things that we enjoy doing right like we're not going to stop all of our cultural pursuits and all of our you know successful industries mm. because russia are, are invading us i think where it where it is interesting is you know, you've got someone like the the winger Mikhailo Mudrik who 20, 21 years old he's going to go for a hell of a lot of money in the next few months whether that's in January or the summer mm. and there's really big clubs looking at him and on the one hand you know he's from a I think he's from a town near Kharkiv which is you know it's one of those places that's become famous because of this war really isn't it yeah. um, and yeah on the one hand his family are back there. He's traveling, you know, basically sleeping on this bus four or five days a week because of the way that the travel is, all notions of recovery and gym and micromanagement of players' physique is is kind of out of the window for Shakhtar to a certain extent. Yet here's this player who is really on the crest of a wave in terms of his sporting development, has had the most extraordinary Champions League group stage, scored home and away against Celtic. If you've not seen the goal he scored at Celtic Park, stunning goal. Mm. Um, scored, I think, two against Leipzig. You know, really brilliant performances, and the, the surrealism, right, of him individually. His life is going to get so good, right, in the next six months because he's going to become extremely rich. He's super talented. He's going to be very, very famous across the world. But at the same time, you've got this massive uncertainty back home. Mm. There's not a squad in the Champions League that could lose 14 players and not approach it with great trepidation. And as you mentioned there, Shakhtar's logistics, playing their games in Warsaw, uh, having to take those 10-hour drives to get out of the country to take a flight and uh, the lack of micromanagement of their training, I'm sure, all badly affected. Uh, They were in the group with Real Madrid, Leipzig and Celtic. As you mentioned, they won on that opening night against Leipzig 4-1 and they finished third in this group, so... It's been an incredibly creditable effort. Uh, did they have those worries? Uh, and also, why did they let you guys in? Were they keen to have their story told? Yeah, so, I mean, this was probably their one hesitation before doing it was a little bit like we've lost loads of players, obviously lost their head coach in the summer, Roberto De Zerbi, who's rocked up at Brighton um, in, in the Premier League. And I think maybe their one fear was what if we just lose 4-0 every game? You know, like, Will the players still want to do that? Will they want the world to see that much of, you know, what goes on behind the scenes if you lose so many games? And kind of all those fears dissipated with the first night because they go to Leipzig, 
they win four one. Like it wasn't a four one game. It was they, sc- they had four shots on target and scored all four goals. Right. Um, the Leipzig manager Domenico Tedesco was sacked the next morning. You know, circumstances kind of conspired to help them that night. Yeah, but they probably deserved that in the circumstances. Um, but what that did is it injected a real belief um, into the group, into the new head coach Igor Jovicovic. Um, and then they have Celtic in the second game, so it becomes four points. They then have Madrid back, Real Madrid back to back, only lose by a single goal in Spain against Real Madrid at home. Mm. They were within about ten seconds of winning that game. It ended one-one. Rudiger equalizes in the last minute. That performance that night was probably one of the most extraordinary sporting performances I've ever seen live. And the context to that is that same week, the day before, if you remember, the weekend before that game in in October, uh, there was the explosion at the Crimea Bridge. Um, which the you know the Russians said it was a Ukrainian attack, um, and as a result of that, the Ukrainians um, sorry the Putin launched these retaliatory strikes on Kiev on the Monday. Yeah, and that was the first time for five or six months that Kiev had come under fire. Yeah, and I remember that day going into the Shakhtar team hotel for for breakfast, and we'd woken up that morning to to see the news of the explosions. And the whole mood of that squad from like the night before where they were, you know, quite optimistic, the general soundings from the war were quite positive. And then all of a sudden they wake up to literally bombing the playground of the Central Park, rail stations, university buildings, like just like ridiculous, ridiculous, indiscriminate bombing of Mm. civilian areas. Mm. And you just walk in, you see these players checking their phones just waiting for a call from family, from friends, um, telling them they're alive and they're okay. Um, and it wasn't just Kiev that day, it was all across the country. And for them, I, I remember seeing the the manager, Igor Jovicovic, that morning and him just saying to me, have you seen the news? And I said, yeah. And he just said, and now like, I'm expected to get this like group of kids to focus on a match against Real Madrid and tell them how to prepare for you know, as a goalkeeper, how do you prepare to play against Karim Benzema and all this sort of stuff? Mm. He was just like, it's just, how how do I do that? It's impossible. And then the next night, they produced this performance against Real Madrid. Honestly, they should have won 2 or 3-1, really, that night. It was unbelievable. Um, and, you know, yeah, okay, like, in the end, they uh, the final game against Leipzig, it was great from our podcast point of view in that they went into that final game against Leipzig knowing that if they won that game, they'd have gone into the Champions League uh, knockout stages. It was The equation was very simple, but it was just one game too many. They lost 4-0. Um, and, really, and, and there was also, I suppose, the moment against Celtic away. There's a young striker called Sikhan. He had an open net. He missed that. So they, like, they were the third best team in the group. They shouldn't, I don't think they probably deserved to go through, but in the circumstances, it you know, was super impressive. Oftentimes, teams have causes. There's been... A bereavement and there's a feeling of well let's do it in that person's honour and this is on a whole other level this is a lot of pressure on young shoulders and so I'm wondering when they're giving very emotive team talks and talking about death and family members and, and their, their country and then they go out and lose a game that has the potential to weigh very heavily on young shoulders yeah it does but they've not lost many games <laughs> they've not lost many games that's the you know in the Ukrainian league they win most of their games um, they, I don't think they've 
I'm not sure they've lost any games in the Ukrainian league this season. And in the Champions League, okay, they lost two one away from home at Real Madrid, but played played pretty okay that night. So they're not uh, they're not they're not sitting around devastated that we've let our country down that night. Oh, no, you mean you mean like with the Leipzig game where they don't get through to the Champions League yeah. knockout stages? Yeah. No, because they're in the Europa League, right? And if you'd have offered them that at the start of of this group stage, mm. that you know they they were saying I've got them on tape saying they if we can get to the Europa League, then it's an amazing achievement, right? Of course, when you put yourself in a position where you might get to the Champions League uh, knockout stages, then there's a there's a level of disappointment. I think, weirdly, there'd be more disappointment if it was really, really close on the night. Mm. I think the fact, actually, that, you know, it was 3-0 by, like, 60 minutes it almost doesn't give you a chance for real disappointment. And at, at, the, at the very end of that game, the 4-0 defeat at home against Leipzig, you know, you might think like players are just sort of skulking down the tunnel. And the head coach, Igor Yevichovic, he got all the players in a huddle on the pitch and was talking to them and motivating them. And I asked him afterwards, like, what what were you saying at that time? It's quite unusual after a heavy defeat to see that. And he just said, I told them, head up, head up. Like what you've done over the last few months, the amount of traveling, the psychological challenge of it. Um, how can you be anything but proud? And he's like, you know, there's teams like, Atletico Madrid, who won't be in the Europa League, mm. right? There's you're going into a competition with Manchester United, Arsenal, Barcelona, Ju- Juventus. It's like if that's failure, then we'll take failure. Yeah, I do feel as I think back over the last number of months, as I casually read out the Champions League scores on a live show and just mention Shakhtar one 0 down and move on. <laughs> in this part of the world, you know, we still haven't appreciated that weekly miracle that they're almost uh, producing as a final thought Adam you know working this closely with the players and being embedded with them what's been your big takeaway or what what has the experience done for you I think I think like probably like everyone everyone has that element of war fatigue don't we you know when when it's February and March and the bombs for the first time are dropping on a European capital um you, it was kind of like obsessive compulsive viewing in a, in a twisted way wasn't it you yeah. know you turn on the news every night and every tv channel would have huge it would almost be presented from kiev every single night and then over time bit by bit it just becomes so normal it becomes so normal what's happening and really things aren't really changing the same things that were obsessively fascinating us and worrying us in february and march are still happening now to a large extent um, I, I do think I, I think one of the things you asked me before that I didn't fully answer was you know why did Shakhtar let you in and I think the reason they let us in was one to try and try and access different audiences that might not otherwise engage in you know in stories about war because they might not ordinarily watch you know sit down at 10 o'clock and watch the news at night or pick up newspapers and you make it more relatable and accessible by making it, you know, how do you compete in the Champions League when your country is being invaded? Um, and, you know, I mean, they also, I think that's, the, I think they saw, as I say, the fact they were given that special dispensation to leave their country and go and play meant that they felt they had a responsibility to make sure that story was told. I mean, you know, that I think it spoke probably as well for their desperation to a certain extent mm. at the current moment, because, you know, for example, they didn't ask for any control over anything that was put out it was completely you know you can speak to who you want when you want if you want someone on the day of a game if you want a bit of insight to a team talk if you want to sit into a tactics meeting you know there's a lot of trust that's kind of given and i suppose as a result of that 
there's probably certain things that I'd have seen where, you know, you don't include that because it's kind of in return for that access, there's, you know, there's a kind of an understanding that you don't take the mick and, and, and destroy that trust, right? Yeah. But I think they, you know, there's not many clubs in ordinary circumstances outside a wall that would even consider that kind of access. And I think it was very much a product of the result, a, a product of the situation they were in. Yeah, amazing. I, by the way, I just had one last thought as you're talking. Sorry, we're taking <laughs> up so much time. So they're playing their Champions League games at Warsaw and I've been for some time. Have they been adopted by the Warsaw public or what's the relationship like? Well, this this is really fascinating. So um, they, they're playing at Legia Warsaw Stadium, which is called the Polish Army Stadium. Um, the, they sold the tickets for all three Champions League group stage games um, in a kind of bundle um, because I think what they were quite worried about is everyone will buy a ticket to watch Real Madrid not sure everyone will come along and watch Red Bull Leipzig and Celtic um, and they weren't sure you know, how many people would just come and watch Shakhtar in the Champions League now of course there's millions of refugees from Ukraine living in, living in Poland but and this is a, this is a big generalization, but obviously a lot of the men are still in Ukraine. So like the traditional kind of traveling away fans, the ultras of Shakhtar are mostly fighting. So what it tended to mean was the the demographic of supporters at the stadium was really was actually really quite pleasant. It was like it was women and children. Um, they'd often Shakhtar went kind of out of their way to track down like Ukrainian refugees who were living in any of the cities that they were playing in, whether that was Warsaw or Leipzig or Madrid or Glasgow and making sure that they got access to tickets or to be mascots um, during games. What was really interesting, particularly during the Real Madrid game in Warsaw, um, I think there was quite a lot of like soft Polish Real Madrid fans that, that went along mm. um, to that game. And at the start of the game, they were there to support Real Madrid. But Shakhtar's performance on the night was so kind of bold and brave and they're leading 1-0 and they're hanging on that by the end, almost like this stadium full of soft Real Madrid supporters were just cheering on Shakhtar. And my colleague, Joey Dursa, who co-hosts this podcast this podcast series, who was out there, was saying like he'd never seen a kind of a stadium change who it's supporting kind of halfway through a game in the way that happened that night. Wow, amazing. Amazing. Adam Crafton of The Athletic, thank you so much. Away From Home is the podcast series available across the board. So, Adam, uh, well done. Amazing piece of work. Thanks so much. No, thank you for having us. Massively appreciated. Cheers. Adam Crafton there with us. And our football show coverage on Off the Ball is brought to you by Sky. All the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BD Sport and Premier Sports. Back in one sec. Football on Off the Ball. With Sky. Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more. Live only on Sky Sports. This is News Talk.